Well, today we come to the end of our series on the book of Exodus. I chose a passage from the book of Numbers, and I did that on purpose because I want us to see the grand story of the Old Testament. Exodus is not just an idea limited to the book of Exodus. It actually covers a broad theme throughout the entire Old Testament. So I want to rewind and actually go back to Genesis 12, lead us all the way to the passage we had read, and then all the way through the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 12, Abraham is called by God. And God promises Abraham many things. He promises him descendants more than he can count. And he promises that through Abraham, God would bless all the nations. Through Abraham's family, God would bless all the families of the earth. And throughout Genesis, God promises a land that they would be able to enjoy and flourish in. But they actually don't end up in the promised land. They actually end up in the land of Egypt. Abraham's descendants go to live in the land of Egypt, specifically in an area called Goshen. And that starts out as a peaceful coexistence at the end of the book of Genesis in chapter 50. Everything seems to be going well. But in the first chapter of Exodus, Pharaoh enslaves the Jews, enslaves the Israelites. And so God acts in a mighty way, delivers them from slavery, and leads them to Mount Sinai. We talked about this in this series, that God gives the Torah through Moses to the Israelites. And the law is not, is not a burden to weigh them down and make them fail. It's actually an act of God's love. He clearly communicates what he expects of his people, but we saw uh, last week that they actually worship another idol. They worship another God right as God is giving them this Torah. And so God makes an offer to them. He, he says to Moses, you can go into the promised land. I'll even guide you there, but I'm not going to go with you because of your sin. And Moses rejects that offer. He doesn't want that. He would rather be in the wilderness with God's people and with God than be in the promised land without God. And so God instructs Moses to build a tabernacle. This is a sacred tent in which God's presence is going to reside. God is going to be with God's people. And we see this at the end of the book of Exodus. So we move to the next book, Leviticus. And this is a book full of God's laws. Again, this is not meant to be a burden. A lot of these laws are about how the Israelites can seek forgiveness for their sins. So they're still at Mount Sinai, still receiving God's law in the book of Leviticus. And then we move to Numbers. We heard from the first chapter this morning about the Israelites taking a census. And what they end up doing throughout the book of Numbers is wandering. They don't end up in the promised land in the book of Numbers. They're still figuring out how to live with God and with each other. The book of Deuteronomy after that is actually just Moses repeating all of these laws, repeating the covenant that God has made with his people. So after the first five books of the Bible, the Israelites are still not in the promised land. They still await greater freedom because our definition that we've been working with throughout this series is that true freedom is doing what God wants us to do and being the kind of people that God wants us to be. And still after five books, the Israelites are not doing this. They're still sinning, still disobeying. 
and they're still not in the promised land. In the next book, Joshua, this is named after a leader who takes over after Moses. Finally, Joshua crosses over the Jordan River and starts to conquer the land. This is the promised land that God has offered, but it actually doesn't end up very good for the Israelites because the Israelites, again, keep sinning, keep disobeying God's commands. And we enter into the next book, Judges, which is a total time of chaos. God appoints these military leaders called judges to fight back against Israel's enemies, but there's no king in the land of Israel, and so everyone does what's right in their own eyes. They don't consider God their true king, and so they want human kings. God hesitantly and reluctantly allows them to have a human king, but they're no better. If you just look through the stories of Saul, David, and Solomon, these men are corrupt and they disobey God. All of their descendants are no better than them. There are some good kings, but overall, they keep sinning. They keep disobeying God. And even though they experience prosperity in the land, even though God's promise of giving them a land that's flowing with milk and honey, even though they experience that, they end up ignoring the poor, ignoring the widow, ignoring the orphan. They don't care about justice. And so God exiles them. He allows foreign nations like Assyria and Babylon to come in, to conquer Israel, to destroy the temple, to sack the city of Jerusalem, and deport so many Israelites into other nations. They're exiled from the promised land. Now, we do read books like Ezra and Nehemiah in which Jews, some Jews, come back to the land, but it's only a partial return. They do build, rebuild the city of Jerusalem, but it's just not as good as it was before. They rebuild the temple, but it's just not as glorious as it was before. So after 39 books in the Old Testament, after we see all of that story come together, the Israelites are still not in the promised land. They still await greater freedom. And in the midst of all that, centuries after Abraham, centuries after Moses, centuries after all the stories in the first five books of the Bible, there's this 30-year-old rabbi who comes out of this town in the middle of nowhere, and the town is called Nazareth. And he talks a lot about the slavery of the Israelites, but he doesn't talk about them being enslaved to the Romans who are currently oppressing them. He says, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. He says in his opening sermon that he's come to set the captives free. He says that he's going to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the language of redeeming slaves from their masters. And referring to himself, he says, whoever the son sets free is free indeed. But we're left with two questions about this man and his message. First of all, who is he? Who is he to say that he can free the Israelites? I mean, there have been 39 books about how they're not truly free. So who is he to say that he can free them? But also, how? If Moses couldn't do it, and Joshua couldn't do it, and Abraham couldn't do it, and all the judges and kings and prophets could not free God's people, how can this man do it? 
Well, we know at the very least that this man goes through what God's people went through. As a baby, he was seen as a threat and he had to actually flee to Egypt with his parents to stay safe. We know that as a young man, he went out into the wilderness just like the Israelites. We know he was rejected by his hometown just like all the prophets were rejected. We know that he was poor. He had no place to lay his head at night. We know that he actually shares in what it's like to be like us. We know he's human. But if we pay attention, we actually see that he very intentionally retraces the steps of all of God's people. We know that he's born in Israel. He's a fully Jewish man. We know, just like I said before, that he went to the land of Egypt just like the Israelites did before him. And just like Joshua crossed through the Jordan River, Jesus went into the Jordan River and was baptized there by his cousin John. We know that right after his baptism, he goes into the wilderness and he's tempted by Satan. We know that just like the prophets, he preaches in the land. We know that he often goes up mountains to deliver great sermons and teach God's people. He very intentionally retraces the steps of God's people. But we know that wherever God's people failed, at each of these steps, we know that he does it. He was never a slave. He was always free. We know that when he is tempted in the wilderness, he never succumbs to the temptations. We know that when he preaches in the land, he never just tells people what they want to hear. We know that he never grumbles against God. He is always grateful to God. So he's more than just retracing their steps. He is succeeding wherever God's people failed. He is perfect, whereas we so often sin. And he actually does more than that. He performs miracles with great power, and he heals the sick, and he raises the dead, and he forgives sin, and he can predict the future, and he knows people's thoughts before they say them out loud. We know that when he's talking about passages from the Old Testament, he speaks as if he wrote it. So he's more than a conqueror like Joshua. He's more than a liberator than Moses, and he's more of a prophet than Isaiah. He is more than that. He's more than just a man. He is fully human, but he's more than that. He is God's tabernacling among us. He is actually the one who met Moses on Mount Sinai. He is the king who let them have their broken human kings. He is fully God. So who is this man who claims he is able to set us free? Well, he is fully man and fully God, which explains and answers the next question. How can he set us free? Well, because he's God. He is God in flesh. He is God among us as one of us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And he sets us free not by going after our superficial enemies. He doesn't fight with the Romans. He doesn't go after flesh and blood. He goes after our true enemies. Sin and death and Satan. 
He defeats sin by going up on the cross and facing all of the consequences of our sin, bearing it upon himself. He defeats death because on the third day, on Easter Sunday, 2,000 years ago, he was raised from the dead. He didn't go around death. He didn't exempt himself from death. He went through death, and now death is behind him. Death could not hold him. Death is greedy and wants to take all of us, but it could not hold on to Jesus. He defeated our enemy, death, and he also defeated Satan. Throughout his life, he resisted the temptations of Satan in the wilderness. He freed people from demonic possession, and he took away the two tools that Satan has over us, which are sin and death. He went after our true enemies. Our true enemies are not Pharaoh or Rome or whoever is your enemy. Your true enemy is sin and death and Satan, and he defeated them. 2,000 years ago, he vanquished our foes, which means that true freedom is found in Christ. We've been talking about true freedom this whole time. But we've had enemies all the way in the beginning, all the way from Genesis 3 moving forward. We've always had the enemies of sin and death and Satan, and we couldn't liberate ourselves from them. We couldn't free ourselves from their power. And so Christ came as fully human and fully God. He was able to do the things that we could not do, and he did them on our behalf. He gives us true freedom. He enables us to do what God wants us to do and be the kind of people that God wants us to be. Just search for the word free or freedom in the New Testament and you will see that he can give it to you. He frees a sick and bleeding woman from her suffering. He sets free the tongues of those who are mute. He frees a crippled woman from the things that bind her limbs. He sets us free by the truth that he teaches us. He gives us the Holy Spirit and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. He sets us free free. Our enemies are defeated. Our true enemies are done for. And so if you want true freedom, it can only be found in Christ. Outside of his victory, we're still slaves. Slaves to sin, slaves to death, and slaves to Satan. But if we're in him, if we're united to our liberator, Jesus Christ, we are free. Whoever the Son sets free is free indeed.